Welcome to The Local Authority, the podcast by Local Government Chronicle and TPX Impact. Each month, we bring together leading figures from within and around local government to discuss the sector's future. If you enjoy listening to The Local Authority, hit the subscribe button to have new episodes delivered to your device each month. You can share this podcast with your colleagues by going to lgcplus.com forward slash podcast. Welcome to The Local Authority, the podcast from Local Government Chronicle and TPX Impact. I'm Sarah Kalkin, LGC's editor. The Local Authority brings together some of the biggest names in and around local government to discuss some of the biggest issues and challenges facing the sector. The theme is one of change. How can councils change their area and themselves for the better? Today, we're looking at the future of elections and democracy. Turnout for local elections typically hovers around the 30 to 35% mark. Could new technology or ways of engaging with citizens help to increase interest and improve how representative council chambers are of the communities they serve? Is first past the post the best system? And what will the changes being introduced by the Elections Act mean for councils? To discuss all this and more, I'm joined by my expert panel today, Peter Stanion, Chief Executive of the Association of Electoral Administrators. Darren Hughes, Chief Executive of the Electoral Reform Society, and Claire Hazelgrove, Community and Political Engagement Director for TPX Impact. Hello, everyone. Hi there. Um, if I could just start by throwing out a question t- to all of you, really. So if you could change one thing about how elections are, are currently conducted, what would it be and why? Um, perhaps, Peter, if we could start with you. Um, to your- closest to the coalface, as it were, what, what would you like to see change? What The change, I think, really is more on the lines of um, there's been so much change. Um, I think with the amount, certainly in my career, 30, 40 years plus now, it's been a constant change to the system tinkering around the edges. I mean, we've long called for a, a simpler system, one that is more was more, more modern, brought into the 21st century than the Victorian-based system that we've, we've got. So I think really where... We've got a pretty good system already. There's a lot of things around the edges that need to be considered as we move into more modern ways of doing things. Accessibility is absolutely massive. You know, do we begin to look to ways of engaging with people in different ways? Um, but when it comes down to it, I think the, the biggest change we ironically would like to see is a slowing down of that change because there is so much around the edges that's making it far more complicated to administer. And when it comes to it, the people who will be um, most at risk will be the electorate where, you know, potentially things will start to get confused and go wrong. So it's, a, it's almost a strange answer to give you that, ironically, the change that we need is probably just to slow down, take a look at what we've got, and then take it forward in a modern way from that point onwards. Sure, sure. And Darren, what about you? What what change would you like to see? Well, I, I think, unsurprisingly, the, the number one change I'd like to see in England would be a change in the, in the voting system for for local elections, and I, but I know we're going to come on to that. So, so let me go a little bit broader out and say that I think I think that when we're looking at changes, what we really need to start doing far more is putting the experience of the voter right in the middle of it, and that goes from the moment of registration, engagement, how the campaigns are conducted, uh, the actual administration of of the elections, obviously, uh, and and then the way those votes are counted and translated into political representation, and I think that. 
for for too long, a lot of the reforms that have come through have been from the point of view of people who administer the system or political parties who dominate the system and write the rules for it. So the change I'd like to see is a much more citizen-centric approach that would take into account, I think, a lot of the things we're going to talk about on this podcast. Yeah, sure. I'm seeing a lot of nods, nods of agreement there from the panel as well. Um, Claire, what about you? And I, I know you're particularly interested in issues around engagement. Mm, yeah, thanks. I massively agree with that last point as well. It is about how we can make sure it works best for people. Um, but I think for me, a standout issue here really is around the quality and consistency of information that people get ahead of elections. It feels pretty piecemeal right now. And um, you know, in some places, some of my friends in the most recent local elections were talking about the brilliant booklets they got, which set out different candidate statements really clearly. I live in Bristol. We had a really important referendum here on how our city will be governed for at least the next 10 years because it was a pretty binding referendum. And turnout was, I think, I think around 24%. Uh, and a lot of people, because there wasn't a booklet that was sent out beforehand, I think you know, all sides of that divide heard people say to them on the doorstep that, oh gosh, I didn't really know something was happening. I don't know that I feel qualified enough to cast a vote. And so I think that's you know something that's really important for us to look at and to change is to make sure there's enough high quality, clear information so people feel empowered uh, to have a say about important things that impact their lives. Thank you. I just want to, Peter, on that, that point, um... I live in Lewisham. We also got a booklet, I think. But is there is there any requirement for councils to do that, or is that is that up to the individual local authority? It depends on each individual election. For the the mayoral ones, there is a requirement in law for a booklet to be produced for each of the candidates in that mayoral election. But for normal local government elections, no. For parliamentary general elections, there's a free booklet provided through Royal Mail to everybody. So it does vary from from election to election. But clearly the engagement, as much as anything, is that from an administrative perspective, we're very much of the view that it's for political parties to sell their their message. That's what they're there to do. There's responsibility on local authorities, returning officers, to ensure that individual electors know how to participate in that election. And there, that comes right through registration, through to actually going into where they go and vote, postal voting, proxy voting, etc. So it does vary from election to election, but there's still an obligation on engagement with the community from the local authority to ensure they know how they can participate if they wish to do so in the poll that's taking place on whatever day that might be. Sure. That's, can I just come in on that just, just quickly to say how interesting that is? Because, I, um, Sarah, I too am in Lewisham, and uh, I, I was tidying up the other day and I found the booklet, but it was only for the, for the mayoral uh, election. We have a directly elected mayor in Lewisham. Uh, but there was nothing on the candidate for the three vacancies in the ward. And so hearing Peter say that uh, just, just shows that councils are obviously complying with their legislative responsibilities, but are not taking a step further into what's best for the citizen. The very same voter who receives the pamphlet uh, about the mayoral uh, election is also voting uh, for three ward councillors. And I think that's just another example of where, you know, sort of this far, no further. I, I know there are budget constraints, but but that's not really putting the voter first. That's that's putting the system first. Yeah. Claire, did you want to come in on that? Yeah, I completely agree with that. So last year we re-elected our directly elected mayor here in Bristol, had a great book and lots of information. And then this year, when it comes to do you want to have this system of governance or move to a committee system, 
uh, there wasn't that level of information. So it was really interesting to sort of say, you know, I'm on the sort of nerdy side, right? I kind of look at the devil in the detail and I love this sort of thing and I get involved. But I was really conscious that for neighbours and friends and so on, that's just not going to be the case in busy lives, lots going on. Um, you know, so I do think it is really important that, as you say, we think about this citizen-centred approach and don't put the burden onto busy individuals to try and understand what's happening when, to be perfectly honest, I think here a lot of people first learned that there was a referendum on how the city would be governed when they got their polling card through, which is you know, it was quite a surprise to a lot of people, really. So a lot more that we could do better, I think, on that point. Sure. Engagement, obviously, it seems to be a, a widespread concern. I'm interested, none of you sort of mentioned new technology so far. I mean, is there potential there to use new technologies or even, you know, just online to kind of help engage people. Lots of councils, for example, send their kind of email newsletters and things now. I mean, is there is there scope to use that more around election time? Uh, it's a strange one with, with the, the role of the electoral administrator, the returning officer, is they've got to maintain that independence throughout the whole process and be very clear about that because obviously they're the ones governing the, the administration of the election. But over the last six, seven years, as individual electoral registrations come in, databases of of contact details are slowly being built because there's the ability now to register online, which wasn't there some years ago with just paper-based systems. So slowly but surely, those databases are beginning to be built to allow direct communication with electors to advise on things such as when the election is taking place, where their, their polling stations are. But it's a long, slow progress to get to that point. And there's also got to be the point of ensuring there is uh, equal access to that information being provided. So from an admin perspective, um, slowly but surely, the contact details are getting there directly. But we're still relying very much on using, and it can be through um, the social media channels, for council media departments to be able to actually get messages out in that way. Uh, Peter, we just come back to you were talking about at the start. There'd been a lot of tinkering round round the edges. Could you just perhaps expand on on what those those changes are that have perhaps not been so positive for the future of elections? Yes, yeah, certainly. I think the, the the key point to it is there's there's lots of things. Let, let, going back to the core of it, the legislation was written back in the 1870s um, and generally works in the 21st century. But lots of things have been actually um, placed on top of that uh, old legislation that conflict with the way that the modern world works. Um, so there are lots of little bits within the legislation that need, and within process, really need to be addressed to make sure that the risk is taken out of the actual elections themselves. Um, but clearly what we're seeing is, is the big ticket items, you know, the, the introduction of voter ID, the handling of postal ballot papers, all the big ticket items are coming in without that actual, um, the bedrock of it being analysed to make sure there aren't the risks that are in there. So what we've constantly asked for is the having a look at what's there. Does it work for the 21st century and taking all the good and actually making sure that it will work to deliver uh, in that way? And it can be simple little things like timetables. We've got very constricted timetables now. Um, will they work with the postal voting that's been put on top of that with the, with, with the, uh, the time available for those things? So there's lots of practical implications that worry us in regards of the, the fragility of elections going forwards um, that are only going to be made worse with the changes that are coming on top of that 
adding extra pressure into the administration of the election itself. Sure. You mentioned their voter ID, um, which is one of the changes being introduced through the Elections Act, and that will require all voters to show ID in order to, to vote, photographic ID, I believe. What do we think about that, um, Darren? Yeah, well, I, I can. Uh, I don't have to beat around the bush on this by offering a nuanced view. We, we think this is a terrible development. Um, uh, we, we don't believe that it's evidence-based. Uh, so this is the worst way of introducing laws about the governing of elections and administration. They should be done calmly, carefully, non-biased, uh, enduring, with broad support. Uh, and I think the changes we've saw most recently were were much more of an American-style partisan motivation. So th- these are the anecdotes of party campaigners in local areas projecting onto tens of millions of us what they think might be happening at the election, even though there's not evidence for it. And I, and I, I think that what's um, the legislation has gone through now, so it's more um, uh, it's more in sadness and in anger. But but for the first time, we're now introducing legislative changes that put up more barriers, not reduce barriers. And generally, the, the tide of history in electoral administration and, fran- and the franchise has been to expand, include more people, reduce barriers, make it easier. We're now moving into a phase where we're actually making it more difficult and, and running the risk of shutting out um, more people. So, so we're, we're very worried about this. And uh, you know, now it is the law. Now we've got to try and uh, promote its existence so that people are aware of it and can try and get access uh, to ID, but I, but I do just um, signal that note of caution that I think it's much better to write rules that are enduring for a long period of time rather than coming up with things for short-term uh, uh, political tactics. I, I think that that's an error, and it tends to be the sort of things that in the long run is regretted. So I think it, it, is, it is worth just putting that on the record uh, in a discussion like this that we need to get back to, in a way I started out by talking about voter-centric, but also some of these first principles about you know, r- rules should be able to assist parties, whether they're polit- flying high politically or going through a low period, as all parties do in, in the great uh, <laughs> in the great pendulum of politics. And what, what I think would be very terrible for the voter, but also those who, who care about these things, would be every time there's a change of administration uh, affecting rules, for a new set of proposals to come forward uh, that, that are just uh, um, very partisan in nature for that particular moment in time. And, I, and, I, and I, I really do think it's worth us just marking what a moment this has been uh, with the passage of that of that legislation. So, yeah, not happy with it. Sure. And I've seen a lot of um, nodding again there. I mean, Claire, do, do you share those concerns? Yeah, I do. And uh, on a personal level, I've been an activist and campaigner in US elections. And so I've seen and felt the challenges that really do exist for people who just aren't sure if they are able to vote, if they can vote, if they should vote, if voting is for them, which are you know, barriers that are only increased, uh, as Darren says there, because of inclusion of voter ID is just an additional blockage, you know, and you know what it's like. You know, most people are sort of, they know there's a polling day going on, but perhaps you've got to go to work early, you've got to pick a kid up early or something like that. And you think, right, I've got to get to the polling station. And in that moment, you realise your ID is on, you know, on your desk at home or, you know, down the sofa or whatever. Like that shouldn't be a reason for people not to be able to cast their vote in a really important election on something that matters to them in their lives. So I do struggle with that. And having seen it in practice and the barrier that it truly is in the US, um, I'm not personally supportive of it. And even, you know, then what we spend a lot of time doing at TPEX Impact is working with local authorities, regional authorities, 
on how can they better engage um, with the people that they represent. And a big part of that is supporting them often in thinking about how can they better engage with the more seldom heard voices in their communities. And so, you know, it's, it will be similar people as we see from the research and the data who will be impacted by this. And so, um, no, I don't think it's the right direction of travel if we really do want to open up and increase participation and engagement and democracy, which are the things that we're very passionate about and making sure that people's voices are at the heart of change. This really is the opposite of that. Sure. And I, I think when the bill was going through, LGC covered it a lot and we did struggle to find any kind of serious commentators who backed this voter ID proposal. But it is the law. We are where we are. Peter, perhaps could you say something about how councils are preparing for its introduction and perhaps it, to mitigate some of that that's a participation challenge that it might create? Well, as things stand, we're, we're waiting to see the secondary legislation. Um, it's being worked on as we speak. We don't know how it will be. Clearly, with the Act itself, it sets the framework. We're now looking at the actual implications on two levels, really. One the administration in local authorities and the ongoing administration, the pressures that will bring in in terms of producing the free voter ID card, for example, the engagement in terms of ensuring people are aware of what they need to take with them to, to polling stations, learning from the pilots that took place uh, a couple of years ago. But it's also um, probably of, of, of uh, as great, if not greater concern, is those volunteers in polling stations, the presiding officers and poll clerks, who will have to administer this uh, forgive the terminology, at the coalface effectively, because they will be the ones who will be having to say to people that they they may well have seen vote year on year on year who are unable to produce or forget to produce their ID, you're not able to vote on this occasion unless you're able to do that. So it's a huge pressure coming down that the I think the preparation is both in the actual building blocks to be able to administer that system through the local authorities but also how we ensure that those volunteers in polling stations are the ones are able to um, uh, deliver what is the law, um, whether we agree with it or not, that is what the law says, and then actually having to do that uh, consistently across every single polling station in the UK. That, that, that's, such a, that's such an important point for people to take on board. I mean, that, that's, uh, you know, when decisions are made on high, and then when they're carried out, you know, at community level, that, that, that there's such a disconnect there. And I think, you know, we, 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 did, we didn't sit a lot through the passage of the bill. And obviously, as a concept, voter ID has been around for a few years uh, now. And, uh, and I think one of the things that struck me about it was all of the people working on it, commenting on it, discussing it, couldn't conceive of not having ID because they're at a stage in their life professionally where they just have to have it. And I think it was a revelation for some people, just how difficult that is. And, and then to the point Claire makes, I, I think the, the biggest problem is going to be not, well, it's going to be a big problem those who don't have ID, of course it is, but 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 another big group will be those who simply forget it and on a busy day don't go back. And I, I think that will trounce by 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 a factor many, many times over uh, this, this so-called concern about, about, about personation. But, but also just picking up on another, another point Peter made, I think for campaigners like us who made such a, a noise about this, it's now incumbent on us to make sure we do promote the fact that the scheme exists uh, and, and to, to try and ensure as many people as possible uh, have the requirement so that they don't, uh, that, that they don't miss out on it. But when, when the pilots are being run, one of the things the Cabinet Office Minister at the time crowed about was, was how many people knew about it. But that was only because the Cabinet Office put in significant resources to alert people on those pilot areas that there was a voter ID scheme. 
So I think there's a clear established connection now between letting people know and then the, the chances of it, of it working. And I think if we just simply rely on um, this to be done locally, that's that's not fair. It, it's, a, it's a new system imposed centrally, and so there should be the central resources to explain it uh, across the country. And I think people who have got concerns about voter ID should swing in behind that, uh, because actually, you know, we, 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 the most important thing is not that we prove our point right. The most important thing is that is that as few voters as possible uh, are, are, are not Sorry, few people as possible don't lose the right to vote. Sure, sure. And Peter, I think you wanted to come in. Uh, you also just mentioned before this voter ID card. So just to clarify, that's councils are being asked to. Um, offer this service of providing an ID card for people who may not have a passport or, or driving licence. And I guess that's another burden on councils as well. Yeah, it's basically for any, the, 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 the government intention is that anybody who's unable to produce the, the listed ID will be able to have free ID given to them by applying to the local authority. So um, the, the concern on that is not so much the, the numbers per se, it's when they come in the, in the election cycle, because clearly... If you haven't got the ID, you want to cast a vote in that election, you're more likely to make that application late in the day. Um, so that's an area we're still working through in terms of what the secondary legislation will say. But I think a point that Darren made, there's um, quite an interesting one um, around the fact that everybody behind it and absolutely support that. Um, the Electoral Commission will have an obligation and will produce uh, national ID, uh, national um, information about the ID system. But the one thing that we mustn't forget in all of this is that we concentrate very much on general elections, parliamentary elections. This will be taking place at local parish by-elections, for example, as well. So we need to make sure that we've got this embedded into the whole of this system all the way through. Uh, sometimes local authority elections get forgotten. It's all talked about generals. Um, clearly, they're the highest profile, but they're not the ones that take place the most often. So we need to do everything we can to keep that information coming through, that individuals to cast a vote in any type of poll taking place, certainly in England, will need to bring that ID with them, whether that be a parish by-election or a parliamentary general election. Sure, sure. And Claire, did you want to come in there? Yeah, thanks. I think that's such a good point about the different types of elections as well. As we know, turnout is already about half of what it is in local elections here compared with general elections. So anything that is dampening that feels like a, you know, a negative turn of events, really. And I think it's something that clearly it sounds like we all agree on on this call and many people do generally that we want to be seeing democratic engagement go up. Right. Not down. And I suppose this is a bit of a broader point around that. So obviously, people are well, you know, well entitled to stay at home if they don't want to vote. But that feels very different from putting barriers in people's way. I think there's a lot more that collectively those of us who operate in these spaces could be doing and parties and other actors as well to really try and understand like what are those other barriers that are in place for people right now. There is some good research on this, but we don't really see much change off the back of it in terms of what are those things? You know, is it about you know, the type and tenor of debate? Is it about the candidates you know, on offer? Is it about when elections are held? You know, what's going on? What are the things that are stopping people choosing, putting this issue briefly aside, to vote? And what can we do about that? I think that's something that we could all do a bit more on in this system if we want to be talking as we are on this podcast today about the future of elections and just thinking about how do we increase participation and engagement more broadly. Sure, sure. So just before we move on from the Elections Act, one of the other things it introduces is an expansion of first past the post into uh, the metro mayoral elections. Um, Darren, I'm, I'm sure you have a view on that. Is, is it going backwards, this, essentially? 
I think I think it is a, a backward step because basically since the since devolution at the end of the nineties, uh, whenever the franchise has been expanded or whenever new institutions have have been created, we've moved away from first past the post. A bit, sort of a, a tacit acknowledgement that that it, it's not necessarily conducive uh, for the kind of outcomes that bring more people in and bring more political balance. Uh, and so it's, it's been it's not been used and you know uh, tucked away in the Conservative manifesto uh, in the certainly in the twenty seventeen election. Uh, was this provision to abolish the supplementary vote system for direct, directly elected mayors and also for the uh, often forgotten police and crime commissioners. Uh, and uh, that, that, that is you know, an example of what I mentioned before about normally when there's, when there's new legislation in these areas, it's about opening up, bringing more people in, reducing barriers. Here's another example of where things have gone backwards. And they've kind of gone backwards by changing the rules because at the present time, the governing party don't believe that they do very well under that system. This is at the present time. And this is why the rules need to be written for a long horizon of time when parties are up and down. Uh, and that just takes away that, uh, that supplementary vote where people got a second choice. They could express their first preference and then they could express their second preference. And that was good for people who support independent candidates and smaller parties because it meant they could participate in the rest of the election once they'd, uh, once they'd put their own first preference in, into the ballot box. And that's been taken away with these, uh, with these changes, which is a, a grave shame, I believe. I just wonder what you think, though. So the Electoral Reform Society is in favour of um, proportional voting systems for all elections. Uh, I think I'm right in, in saying that, Darren. But what, what would be the impact on, on councils? Obviously, we've seen that in, in Scotland. I think it's almost universally no overall control in Scotland now. And what are the advantages of that? Sure. So we are in favour of, of the uh, single transferable vote system, a form of proportional representation, where, where, by the way, it's still possible to win a majority. You just have to win a majority of the votes. Uh, and so it's a, a system where seats match votes. And, and there are uh, countries, my own home country of New Zealand, is a majority uh, government. Jacinda Ardern, the Prime Minister, was able to win a majority of votes. She got a majority of seats. So often you hear it described as these systems are designed to prevent ma majorities. Now, what they're designed to do uh, is make sure that the political representation a party gets is broadly aligned to its support in the community from the votes that it receives. And in Scotland, we've had four, uh, four cycles now of the STV elections. In Wales, from now on, it will be an option for councils to choose. Uh, and so we're very much encouraging of that. Um, it, it works. One of the reasons it works so well is, is see, to take London, for example, where there are multi-member wards. Uh, it means that uh, a party that is dominant can can take, you know, the majority of the representation, maybe at ward level, but not all of it. And so the, the parts of the ward that have other political preferences are able to see to see them get elected. And there's uh, at the most recent election in, in, in London, there were three different boroughs where three parties, three different parties. Uh, were able to win an outsized majority of the vote, uh, which sorry, majority of the seats that didn't reflect their their vote share locally, and it means that in some some boroughs there are literally no opposition councillors whatsoever, even though many citizens have voted for different parties. So, going to proportional representation would still mean that a dominant party would do well, but it would just mean they wouldn't get all the say, and you could bring in other voices uh, as well. Now, sometimes parties don't like that um, because they think about where they are in control in those geographic areas. But it's worth them pausing for a moment to think of the parts of the country where they are significantly underrepresented and it would effectively level up their representation in other parts of the country. So 
good for the citizen immediately and actually longer term better for the parties uh, because their their level of representation will be spread across the whole country as opposed to these kind of deep pockets where they have total control uh, and the price they pay for that is other parts of the country where they have no say at all. Sure. And I, I wonder what you think about that the impact of that on engagement. Could it be, would it increase engagement, more people get their voices heard or conversely, you know, having a clear winner or loser is actually easier for people to understand and maybe that is better for engagement. What what, what do you think? I think that is a million dollar question, <laughs> really. If only we knew what would help most with engagement. I think there are challenges with any system as we see around the world, right? It's, it's Darren says different systems are in place elsewhere and uh, obviously different rules and things around mandatory voting and, and things like that. Um, so there are a lot of things to compare and contrast. And um, no, so I, I wouldn't want to hedge my bets on turnout and engagement in that sense. I think what's important for us really is, you know, at, at TPX Impact, we work with local authorities and just democratically elected governments, no matter how that they how that happens, uh, and work with them to just better engage with their communities. And so what I do think is really important is almost, almost no matter this massive question, a very important question of the voting system, is just ensuring that councils are feeling able, confident, capable to do that in a more day-to-day way and really integrate people through more participatory uh, and ongoing approaches, deliberative democracy, things like citizens' assemblies can be really interesting ways of engaging people outside of electoral cycles as well to make sure that really complex issues that affect their lives are things that they can have a say on. And I think that fundamentally, bringing people into more processes like that, showing that they're happening, giving people a way of, of participating, uh, you know, this, this is the type of thing that I do hope would actually increase democratic participation across the board and hopefully in local elections, general elections, town and parish council elections as well, because people will feel hopefully closer to their authorities and better represented by them in an ongoing way, almost regardless of that overarching system. So I think we do need to look at that hyperlocal level as well as this big sort of systems level uh, to answer that question around engagement. Mm-hmm. And citizens assemblies there was a kind of a a flurry of of them i think just pre-pandemic really and a lot of that was around the climate emergency and the and the net zero challenge was it was it just a passing fad or do you think we might see more of these again Uh, peter is it something your colleagues are are getting involved in or not it will do it will vary from local authority to local authority but certainly there's a clearly a, a a desire to devolve a lot of the decision-making um, back to, to local authorities in certain areas. I mean, we have some concerns. that we, we, There are, there are um, things such as neighbourhood planning referendums. There's uh, there's the community governance reviews that are already on the statute book. And there's, all, there's also now talk of things such as street naming and having referendums in streets and uh, things like that that do cause a degree of concern. It's, it's very good in terms of citizen engagement, but it's how that, from, from our perspective, is then administered and the pressures that's bringing back on top of what is already a creaking electoral system in terms of delivering the statutory election. So probably not the right person to speak to or give an answer on, on that one. But from a personal perspective, I, I, I do believe that it's not just about the 4th of May, for example, and then four years later we come back again. What this is about is actually ensuring engagement with the local community throughout. And that surely has to be the way that local authorities ensure they're delivering what local services are required. That's more of a personal viewpoint than it would be administratively, but you know, mechanisms in place come with the with the challenges about how are they administered and pressures against other responsibilities that returning officers and their teams have already got. 
Sure. Yeah. And Darren, what, where do you stand on citizens' assemblies? Oh, really in favour of, of them and quite excited by, by, by their potential in a way. I mean, I think that, um, and I spoke before about what voting system to use, and I, and I do think that's that's important because it's a, it's a determinative event in an election. You know, there, there are candidates as a campaign, uh, and and uh, and what we're arguing for is that you know you, you should you should have a variety of voices that 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 reflect the community. Um, then sitting around those those council tables, but that's sort of what happens on the day. In between elections, you, you want to you want to be able to carry forward that spirit of here is the makeup of our of our community uh, politically. Now, how do we live together for the next four years? And I think that's where citizens' assemblies uh, can come in and be really quite helpful because it's a it, it's the next logical step of of of, of power sharing of understanding uh, where where people's information is coming from and where, where just how decisions ought to be taken. And I think that. Whether it's on you know sharply controversial topics where, you, where they just need, needs to get a good hearing, or on or on new kind of areas. I mean, although you know some people have followed climate change for uh, for a long time, but for a lot of citizens, it's a re- relatively new concept. There's a lot of learning that needs to be done, and citizens' assemblies are are well well set up to support that. So I think you know thinking about the entire term, y- yes, the structures are, imp- are important, uh, an efficient, well resourced election that's conducted professionally and without bias. Political representation based on the way people have actually voted, and not on a winner takes all sort of Victorian model. But then, but then, how the how the local authority engages with its community in between times is just as important. That, that that's the third leg of the stool in a way, and I, and I think these citizens assemblies uh, have proven themselves uh, that, that 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 their models where you can uh, give people new information, they listen to one another, and come to a conclusion and. Uh, the, the most important, the two most important things that we've learned about it from a BRS point of view, having come to this topic, is, is one is the random selection is just so important uh, because you, you don't want people who've already made up their mind coming to bang the drum and they've found yet another way to get into the system. It's uh, you know that this is meant to be about genuine public engagement, and secondly, um, political figures, both elected and and um, and and, and, the, and the and the from officialdom have to let go, stand back and say, well, we don't control the outcome of this process. And rather than that's normally seen as a negative political thing, we're not in charge of the outcome, actually make that a positive thing. Well, we're going to go where this thing goes. And I think that that you know genuine sense of engagement can bring up some really good uh, community outcomes. So I think if you put all those th- three things together, uh, it'd be a pretty good local authority to live in, if you ask me. Another change that we saw recently and that came in at the 2022 local elections was the expansion of the vote to 16 and 17 year olds. Um, I don't know if anyone has any views on what the impact of, of that was or, or Peter, do you know what, was there lots of 16, 17 year olds that exercised their right to vote in the local elections? Um, I think it's better too early to say what the turnout figures were for, for that particular demographic, 16, 17 year olds. Um, but certainly it was, it was a, a challenge to, to ensure that, uh, Everybody was given an opportunity to get themselves registered. A lot of learning in Wales was taken on from Scotland, who'd been down this route earlier. Um, we wait with interest whether the UK government will bring that into England as well down down the line. It's uh, it's certainly an area where, from a, from our perspective, admin perspective, um, it's clearly just the, the the expansion of the franchise is something that can be done. Uh, it's a political decision, obviously, whether that should be done, and that's obviously. Uh, for for UK Parliament to determine for England. Sure. Claire, in terms of engagement, would you like to see 
votes for 16, 17 year olds expanded more widely? It's a good question. Um, I think, again, anything that sees greater participation is fundamentally a good thing. These are very much my my personal views here. Um, But I do think that Again, to probably my very first point about information, actually, I think this is really important. I think it's important anyway. This isn't a comment about 16 or 17 year olds. I was a very, again, nerdy 16, 17 year old. You know, I knew what I was voting for. If I could have been voting at that point, that wasn't an issue. Um, But I do think that regardless, the quality of political education and information in this country is not what it should be. And to my point earlier, I think that kind of with rights come responsibilities and with requests of people to have more of a say in things comes responsibility on those of us who administer you know, and the state more broadly to make sure that people do actually have the information they need in their hands to feel confident and comfortable in casting that vote. And so I don't think it's as simple as our engagement will be increased if we just you know, invite more people to be you know, taking part in it, I think it's a good principle. But I do think with that does come more that does need to be done. I think political education in schools, yes, it's improved a bit, but it's absolutely not what it should be. I think we do need to be uh, really looking at this afresh and in the rounds, particularly while this conversation is live. It's a great opportunity to do it. And as I say, it's not because of 16 and 17 year olds. It's because we're considering changing parts of our our system and our, you know, who, who can actually vote and so on. So there are responsibilities on those of us who ask others to participate more fully as well. Yeah, I I completely agree with that. It always amazes me. I have friends in very successful, you know, high-flying jobs and their sort of lack of understanding about how political system works, who makes decisions about what is, um, it's always quite shocking. Darren? That's right. I mean, I I think this could be quite an exciting uh, thing. You know, so much of our discussion on these areas is often about complaining about things that we feel are going backwards. But th- th- this is something that could be quite energising, I think, and it is about being a good citizen. There, there are things that we could uh, be teaching younger people about how to ask questions, how to listen to answers, how to work out whether an answer is right or not, or, or needs further probing. I mean, that, those are just really good life skills. And I think if you brought that together, you know, as, as Claire mentions about the citizen education and and uh, in, in civics and schools, I and mean, I think that would be such a, a great thing. And, and then, you know, the, the academic research that's been done does show that that regardless of what the age is, if a person votes in the first election they're eligible to, they, they're much more likely to go on to be a lifetime voter than somebody who misses their first election. So there's actually quite a good public good reason to be, to be following uh, that, to make sure people get to the ballot box on that first occasion. So, you know, we can register people while they're still in school, that's good because of the challenges that are there. Uh, we, we can go through that process of citizenship education, which is just setting people up uh, for the rest of their, their lives, and then we can get them off to the, to the ballot box. And I think a lot of this people project their own prejudice um, onto, you know, what was I like at 17? What would my parents have made me do, et cetera, et cetera. I, I think that's a really reductive way of looking at something. I think uh, the experience in Scotland with the referendum was that some of the most challenging questions came from 16 and 17-year-olds who'd really thought about it because they knew they were getting this vote. Now it exists in Wales. And so I do think from a political perspective, it becomes an issue about the union. There's now different franchise age in different parts of the union. And that's something that the government may, may want to look at in that context. But, but otherwise, I think this is, a, this is a positive thing if it's done well and done right. And we should be trying to do everything we can to make make them be more more informed, more active, more positive citizens uh, participating in public affairs. Sure. Well, I think we're kind of coming to the to the end of our our time here. I wonder if I could ask you all just perhaps to say what you 
what you think might be the, the biggest change we're going to see in elections over the next few years? And uh, Peter, can I go to you on that one first? Well, that's a huge question, Sarah. Um, it's a really, I, I think it goes back to my, my initial answer. I think um, the, the, the huge changes will be uh, about the engagement, about the participation of electors with the system effectively. The introduction of voter ID, however that's rolled out, will create challenges both for um, those in polling stations and the electorate themselves. I think the one thing about the Elections Act is it's not just about voter ID. We, we've touched on some of the other areas, but it's a huge piece of legislation that will bring a, a lot of challenges into the way um, the, the elections are run to prevent fraud, but also at the same time to ensure that there is participation. So what what's going to happen? I think it will just get more complicated to administer, but the crucial bit from, um, I believe, returning officers' perspectives is to make sure that those individuals walking through the doors of polling stations, regardless of the system, regardless of the uh, the, the perceived barriers put in place, are given that us continue to be given that good experience in the polling station to be able to make their choices. And we all we all cry out for let's get that participation up as much as we possibly can. So, again, a bit of a woolly answer on that one, but it's almost an impossible one to answer that question. Is there anything just that you would anything else from the Elections Act that you would want to just? highlight in terms of its impact um, specifically? Well, we're extending the franchise for, or the, the, the franchise will be extended for overseas electors. Uh, currently there's a 15-year um, deadline in terms of, of being back in the UK. That will go. What effect that will have, we we don't know. There'll be uh, tightening up of handing of postal ballot papers back into polling stations. Um, so to, again, uh, an anti-fraud measure that's coming in. The role of the Electoral Commission and their independence uh, in terms of able to oversee the process. There's lots of things that are going on in the background that will be more administratively difficult to deliver, but they won't necessarily be in the front, in the, the forefront of what electors see at polling stations. That will clearly be the voter ID element of these things and increasing accessibility for those overseas. But uh, there's lots of things that are going on in the background that. Uh, Need to be rolled out in a safe, secure manner to make sure again that experience is right in polling stations. Sure, and uh, Darren. So I'd say everything Peter has just said, and then I'd add to it. Uh, I think this issue of voting systems is going to keep coming back up because I think one of the things that marks out the last dozen or so years has been the incredible volatility in the electorate, uh, and and the first past the post system kind of relies on assuming. Group A will keep voting for one party, Group B will vote for the other party, and there'll be this kind of mythical marginal group of voters in the middle that can be fought over uh, and, and, and get a majority for one side or the other. I think um, it's much harder now to predict how people are going to vote, and it's, it's virtually impossible to assume they'll vote the same way all their lives. So I think that's going to bring forward this issue of, well, if that's the case, how do you have a voting system that actually turns that into a positive Rather than a negative, so that's a technical uh, change. I think. I think on the political side of things, on the on the side that's harder to measure, the things that I really worry about, which I think are going to just continue to come up for us, are things like money in politics, uh, and I also think the second area is is uh, the spread of disinformation. Uh, that you know, it's perfectly possible to have a great campaign about a whole pile of issues where people. Um, really go, uh, you know, head to toe on the topic. But what's happening now is the disinformation where people are debating completely different things based on information that's not correct. So I think those are two things that we need to watch out for. They're very hard to give a technical fix to, but I think people just need to keep that in, in, in the forefront of their mind as well in this particular age. Thank you. And uh, Claire, anything you would add? 
Yeah, I agree with so much of that. Um, and I'm a natural born optimist, but I am worried about the future of elections in the near future. I think absolutely the Elections Act and the changes that we've discussed throughout this uh, conversation today are, are worrying. Um, I would also be worried about a binding referendum on one different uh, voting system. I think we're not, I think as a, as a nation, uh, another binding referendum without doing the things we've talked about around education, around information, around doing that for a long time and making sure that people feel able to contribute in you know, any decision on that is really important. And so I'd be really, really concerned. I don't think it's uh, going to happen anytime just yet, but um, I do think we should be thinking long-term about it. And I think that would be the right way to ever go about changing something as important and as integral to our democracy as our voting system. Um, but as I say, I'm a natural born optimist. And so hopefully some signs of hope, I hope that we will see some positive ripple effects from this more ongoing engagement that we're seeing councils and others do. I do hope that that sees participation begin to tick upwards. This is probably a negative and a positive, but I hope the uh, issues that are vast around safety and the tenor and tone in our public debate um, are really looked at because they must be. It is, you know, the abuse that candidates, that, you know, politicians get, even activists get, is completely unacceptable. Obviously, we've lost two MPs uh, to violence because they have, you know, they were representing what they believed in. All of these things absolutely need to urgently be tackled. Uh, and I very much hope that they are. Otherwise, we will see our, our democracy and our parliament and our other chambers and local government as well be less representative because fewer people will feel able to put their heads above the parapet and stand up for what they believe in. So you know, as much as there is a lot of change coming, I do really hope that we don't lose, uh, you know, don't kind of lose the focus on the fundamentals and make sure that our democracy feels safe to participate in, feels clear and straightforward to participate in, and that we see as a result of greater democratic engagement beyond uh, every other May or whenever the different elections happen in different places, um, that actually people feel like they are able to put their voice you know, and their vote on that ballot paper whenever that time comes. Yeah, absolutely. I, I can see lots of nodding again. I think we'd all agree with that. And um, that's been a fascinating discussion. I think there's so many issues there. We could have got into it in even even more detail, but unfortunately our time is up. Um, so I'd just like to thank you all for your time and thank you for listening. And we'll see you on the next episode soon. Goodbye. This podcast was brought to you by LGC and TPX Impact. Local Government Chronicle, or LGC, is the leading title for senior local government officers and the authoritative voice of the sector. To subscribe to LGC for full online and print access, go to lgcplus.com. TPX Impact is a change agency on a mission to build 21st century public sector institutions which are catalysts for change in the internet and climate era to radically improve outcomes for communities. For more information, go to tpximpact.com. TPX Impact, transformation that matters.